Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast bringing you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering changes to the National Flood Insurance Program, how a major update could be a positive step toward addressing the program's rate inadequacy problem. Plus, a new challenge to credit-based insurance scoring. We'll have details on a federal bill to do away with the standard and outline the impacts it would have for consumers. And the growing world of cannabis. NAMIC's John Bergner describes the issues and complexities surrounding insurers' involvement in the marijuana industry. But first, a quick check on the news. Starting in 2020, the National Flood Insurance Program will see the first modernization of its risk rating system in more than 30 years. On March 18th, FEMA announced changes that include using private sector data to calculate the real flood threat for each home covered by the program and for the first time incorporating into its rates the cost of rebuilding a structure. The announcement comes as Congress prepares to reauthorize the NFIP yet again. After 10 short-term extensions since 2017, both Republicans and Democrats believe it's time for a long-term solution. The problem is there is disagreement on the path to reform. North Carolina Republican Ted Budd, a member of the House Financial Services Committee, asked witnesses during a hearing last week if they believe FEMA's risk rating 2.0 plan goes far enough to address the rate inadequacy problem. While the drafts before us today fail to do so, uh, Mr. Heydrich, in your testimony, you mentioned the administration's efforts to modernize NFIP underwriting via risk rating 2.0. And this seems like a good first step, but in your opinion, will it go far enough? And from my perspective, it seems that until my constituents stop funding subsidies for folks to live on the coast and high-risk areas, then we're going to have a program that continues on a fiscally unsustainable path. So, Mr. Lehman, I'd also... Uh, be curious to get your thoughts on this as well. Uh, as I, I mentioned in my testimony, I mean, my proposal is to cease writing new construction. Uh, I mean, that if you're not making the problem any worse by encouraging, actively encouraging people, making it easier for them to build in flood-prone areas, uh, then over time that you'll see those rewards uh, in, in the program becoming more sustainable. The program itself is, is still not going to be sustainable. Uh, part of the problem is the is the fact that whenever we've wanted to assist people, whether it be for affordability reasons or the other subsidies, we've done it by discounting rates. So you're not bringing enough premium to ever be sustainable, and you'll forgive this debt today, uh, but it'll come back for sure. There's, there's, there's no question about that. NAMIC has long called for NFIP rates to be tied to actual flood risk and applauds the administration for taking this significant step in the right direction toward understanding flood risk. In a new push to lower auto insurance costs for policyholders, freshman Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has introduced a bill that would block insurers from using a consumer's credit history when setting rates. During another recent House Financial Services Committee hearing, Tlaib claimed that doing so discriminates against low-income consumers, despite research indicating the opposite to be true. So I read somewhere and uh, that some of the car insurance industry feel that if their credit score is low, the credit score is lower, the likelihood of them committing a crime is higher, a crime of fraud. 
And if you read and dig deep, many experts say, well, wait a minute, you're punishing somebody for being low income. And can most, most people's credit score is not because they haven't paid a bill. Some it's because they haven't got access to credit. And like you talked about some of the services. While well-intentioned, the Prevent Discrimination in Auto Insurance Act would only hurt consumers because it is based on a misunderstanding of insurance underwriting and the role of consumer credit information in the process. As insurers know, credit-based insurance scores are not a proxy for income. High-income people have low scores and low-income people have high scores. Credit-based insurance scores are a reflection of a higher risk of loss, as noted in a Federal Trade Commission study. Further, this proposed legislation runs counter to the established state-based insurance system that has long protected consumers for more than 150 years and where this issue has long since been resolved. The cannabis industry is a growing opportunity for insurers as more states look toward legalization. However, with marijuana still classified as a controlled substance at the federal level, insurers remained hesitant to get involved. A new report from AM Best points out that there are several different market segments related to marijuana that still lack insurance coverage, including some significant ones such as cultivation, retailers, dispensaries, landlords, and infused products. On today's Unscripted, Chuck Chamnis talks with NAMIC's Assistant Vice President of Public Policy and Federal Affairs, John Bergner, about the issues and legal complexities surrounding insurers' involvement in the cannabis business. Well, we know the demand for cannabis is increasing dramatically across the U.S. It's more than half of the 50 U.S. states have legalized it in some form for medical or recreational use. And the issue is getting more complex, and insurers are trying to understand what these issues mean to our member companies uh, and to our industry. So today, I'm very excited. We have from NAMIC's own D.C. office, where we are broadcasting today, Vice President of Public Policy and Federal Affairs, John Bergner, uh, also known sometimes, at least by me, as our weed wonk. John Bergner, are you ready to talk about this uh, cannabis issue and what it means to the insurance industry? Absolutely, Chuck. Let's do it. All right. Well, let's start here. You know, you authored a white paper that hopefully many of our members have read. Um, it, uh, it's really one of the early pieces from our industry about the issue. I know it's been much read in the regulatory uh, world and, and in other places. But um, why don't you give me just an overview of um, what we found in it, the kind of issues we surfaced around uh, why it matters to insurers. Sure. Well, thanks, Chuck. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't start with uh, you know, offering the fact that this was um, definitely a, a group project from our very talented policy team that helped in putting this, uh, this white paper together. The genesis of this paper actually came from one of our policy development groups, uh, our Workers' Compensation Council, uh, and some of our dialogue with them uh, a couple of years ago when we stood it up. They said, hey, this is a emerging issue that uh, we think you guys should take a look at. We're starting to see... Uh, at least in the workers' compensation space, that we're, we're having claims filed that are reimbursed for medical marijuana and, and, and other things of this nature. And so this was um, something we said, okay, well, let's, let's take this back and take a look at it. And we did. Um, and the first thing we wanted to do is get a, a real handle on um, you know, how big and widespread this canna, canna business, uh, the cannabis industry, uh, really was. And so the, the, one of the goals of the paper was to take a look at um, – the whole business cycle uh, of uh, you know the life of a cannabis plant and, and how it gets from cultivation to uh, to the consumer. Uh, we wanted to take a look at the legal landscape. It's obviously very complicated, as you already alluded. Um, Thirty three states and and Washington D C have um, legalized 
medical marijuana and have a comprehensive medical marijuana uh, statute on the books. And then 10 um, states plus D.C. Uh, have rec- uh, legalized the recreational use of, of marijuana. So uh, that, of course, does not uh, change the federal law, which where it remains a Schedule One drug classified under the Controlled Substances Act of, of 1970. So uh, it's created a bit of a tangled legal uh, environment for the cannabis business to be operating in. So we took a look, a look at that, and then we took a look at... at Across as many lines as we could, we could um, you know handle in in one sitting, uh, all the different potential impacts that that uh, our members are facing uh, with the spread of legalization, either for medical or recreational use across the country, and so we took a look at at personal property, homeowners and auto, uh, obviously the workers' compensation line, commercial property, uh, and things of this nature, and found that we really. Um, are just kind of scratching the surface on the intersection between uh, property casualty insurance and and uh, the cannabis industry. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, what kind of opportunities? Um, you know, as our member companies look at this, uh, what kind of opportunities do we see for them? Um, you know, to engage with the cannabis business, which I think that's the first time I've said that word, uh, <laughs> cannabis business. Cannabis business, yes. It, uh, it takes a while for it to start rolling off the tongue. So, you know, I think there's a, been a lot of hesitation uh, amongst the, the, the PNC industry for jumping in with both feet in terms of offering coverages for uh, for these various businesses that are involved in uh, the cannabis supply chain. And I would just, I would just pause here and, and point out, I mean, we've come a long way from the sort of uh, popular culture, hey, my, my crazy hippie uncle growing some marijuana in, in his garage, uh, to, uh, you know, really what's, what's a, a very robust and um, modern industry uh, in terms of the cultivation and the facilities they have that, that grow the plant, that, that cultivate the plant, uh, the biotechnology firms that are, um, you know, doing things like infusing other products with THC and, and, and things like that. So, um, there are, and, and then, of course, even the storefronts, the dispensaries themselves, uh, which, like any storefront, would you know, require commercial general liability policies and, and things like this. So um, it really is a, a robust industry uh, with a lot of businesses that, that like any other business, uh, are going to need and, and want insurance coverage for various um, exposures. So ultimately, I think you've seen some... Uh, mostly, well, I should say it's mostly the surplus lines industry that have uh, come in in, in some of the more developed states like California, uh, Oregon, Washington on the West Coast. So, uh, But there are a few admitted insurers now. The most famous was the first one in California, Golden Bear, uh, that uh, has been offering uh, insurance coverages to these these facilities. I think the hesitation ultimately is the, 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 the legal status at the federal level. It's not just the Controlled Substances Act, which you could run afoul if you're supporting somebody developing something that's, uh, that's illegal under it, uh, but, but even uh, the RICO statute, um, which, which if you're participating in, in helping you know, an illegal activity, you have both criminal uh, liability but also potentially civil liability. And we've already seen, um, I believe it was in... Um, Colorado, a group called the Safe Street Alliance, sue the government, uh, well, well, basically, uh, yeah, the government and the, uh, the, the legal marijuana uh, structure, it was, mm-hmm. it was uh, Hickenlooper, was the other named uh, defendant, um, sued them under a RICO statute for basically um, reducing their 
property values and creating unsafe environments and things of this mm-hmm. nature. So you've already seen a legal case that's that's attempted to use that uh, stat- statute, and I, I don't think it would take much for a clever trial attorney to, to get a whole neighborhood together and decide, hey, we're going to sue this dispensary, this company, and everybody that helps it do business. So, It seems like based on uh, you know what you said about the industry and and uh, you know it's emerging um, posture of vis-a-vis our industry. You know, there's the focused, you know, insurance company efforts where we want to insure the can of business, and then there's the one-offs, which are many, and you referenced a few. You know, comp where these things are starting to be part of the fabric of other insurance uh, coverages that perhaps uh, never contemplated. You know, these type of uh, um, I would say drugs, but uh, uh, substances, yeah, uh, sure, being used. Well, absolutely, and I, I'll give you a couple of examples that I think really underscore the point you just made. And the first one is in a standard homeowner's policy. If you're in a legal state that allows for home cultivation, um, and I, I, I would just note that you know even uh, under if you have a medical marijuana law, the specifics of that statute vary from state to state in pretty dramatic ways. Some don't allow for home cultivation, some do. But suppose you're in a state like Hawaii who does, uh, and and you have 12 mature uh, cannabis plants growing in your basement, market value $9,000, and somebody breaks into your house and steals those, um, that's you know a theft under your homeowner's uh, policy. And we've even seen a court case, uh, it was a bad faith case, based on um, an insurer denying that claim, saying, well, there's no insurable interest in an illegal substance. So, you know, it's not covered. So, uh, and then and then you got to take that through the courts, and some courts are deciding these things in various ways. Uh, another also homeowners-related instance was um, uh, a claim that was made, I believe it was somewhere in the mid-Northwest, but um, or, you know, the Midwest, northern part, um, where a, a, a couple was growing, they're using their entire home, every single room, as a uh, you know, cultivation facility. Um, and It'd be a lovely place. Yes, I, I'm sure it was a, a, a very livable uh, place to, to be, but they had a, a claim, I think it was fire-related, and they um, put in a claim, and the homeowner said, well, this is a commercial property. You can't have a homeowner's policy covering this. You're clearly using this as a commercial facility. Uh, and they managed to uh, d- uh, get the judge to deny a motion for summary judgment based on pictures of a mattress in the corner next to all these pot plants and uh, some other you know, living amenities that said, no, we live here, but we just happen to use this for, for other things. So, wow. if, yeah, if you're a homeowner's insured, that's a much different risk if you've got a house full of plants that either people want to steal or create a huge fire hazard. Uh, based on you know the growing apparatus that requires a lot of electricity and things like that, so it really is kind of impacting in ways that I think insurers had not really foreseen. Let's talk a little bit about how public policy is developing, maybe on two fronts. One, uh, the NAIC I know developed or has, has kind of rolled out a cannabis working group, uh, and two, um, Representative Perlmutter of Colorado, not surprisingly interested in this topic. And when I was in town last week or the week before, there was a hearing in yep. financial services about really banking in cannabis, mm-hmm. and uh, we had some interests around, uh, you know, what about our industry? Or you know, we're right now, in fact, working with our members about what is our appropriate public policy view. It may even be a topic for our board meeting next month. So, how about a little bit on the policy? Yeah, sure. So let me let me start with the NAIC. I, I would just say I would say just a couple things about about that. First of all, um, you know, the cannabis working group at least in my experience working with them, has been um, a little more in the space. It seems like the 
the, the desire, at least, of leadership over the last year or so has been really more in pushing this idea of offering insurance coverage to the, to the dispensaries and the other, the other facilities. Um, and, and less so exploring some of the uh, the issues we get into in our paper. I, so uh, I'm hopeful that this uh, this group can can kind of pivot a little bit uh, going forward into into the space of considering how should we be approaching it as an insurance regulator. We still have an illegal substance at the federal level, but our state handles it this way. And what are the potential um, uh, you know challenges or even opportunities that you know shouldn't not be part of the it shouldn't. You know, not be part of the conversation, but a focus on some of this other stuff would probably be better. And ultimately, I think that's the kind of thing the NEIC ought to be doing: uh, is taking an, an emerging issue like this and trying to get their heads around it, and, and the collective wisdom of, of different state regulators who have been uh, dealing with it. And so, my hope is that is that we can continue to have a really robust conversation around all the different issues uh, for insurance companies uh, in this space with the NEIC. Uh, in terms of the federal. You know, Chuck. At the end of the day, this problem gets solved. The legal status of the of the of the substance gets solved at the federal level. So, no state is able to pass a law that's going to render uh, this suddenly legal at the federal level. So, um, we are going to need something to happen here. You've seen many different approaches uh, across the last, really, the last three years. You've seen a lot of um, uh, more concentrated efforts. Mr. Perlmutter's bill, uh, he had drafted a little bit broader last Congress, and, and, and this Congress seems to be more focused on banking. This is something that is kind of a rifle shot approach where these organizations, in addition to not being able to get insurance coverage a lot of times, aren't able to, to bank easily and get banking services, and so it turns this, this industry into a very heavy, cash-heavy business, which makes it very dangerous yeah. for, for obvious reasons. Amazing stories about uh, yeah. specialized armored trucks Absolutely. and the amount of cash that's counted and shipped around, and it's quite a challenge. Well, that's right. And so you've seen the states that, uh, you know, representatives from the states that have legalized who want to solve this problem for their constituents, and, and maybe representatives who are a little more wary of legalization of marijuana coming together around a public safety issue, which is this is creating, you know, real opportunities for crime, and they're trying to get their their, their hands around that. But at least when we look at financial services, uh, I think we, we will have a tendency to separate pro-legal, anti-legal state decisions and the fabric of financial services, regulation, and how banks, in our case insurance companies, can deal with these businesses. Well, I think that's exactly right. And so... What we're trying to do in, in our conversation is, you know, as a, as a property casualty insurance trade association, taking a position on, yes, marijuana legalization or no is probably not, you know, an appropriate role for us. Uh, but, but to your point in, in sort of trying to figure out uh, the financial services provisions for this industry, uh, our, our, I think we have the uh, just as strong, if not stronger, case uh, as, um, as the banks do for some sort of federal safe harbor uh, from both criminal and legal liability um, under federal law, uh, particularly as it relates to being compelled to do business. So if there's a court case, as we've seen uh, in, in several different states, that mandate the reimbursement for medical marijuana for workers' compensation, for example, um, you know, now the, the company is being compelled to participate uh, you know, in the provision of an illegal substance under federal law. Or, or and we saw this in another in another state, uh, workers' compensation writer being assigned dispensaries through their residual market mechanism, which was an assigned risk pool. And so, this is now the state, uh, you know, department telling them, well, you can't continue to do business here in our state unless you do business with these these entities. And I, I think that's a, I find it a very compelling case that we uh, can and, and have been making 
at the federal level to say, listen, you know, you guys can sort through the public policy decision around legalization, but in the meantime, we certainly shouldn't be subject to some sort of penalties, uh, criminal or civil, uh, because right. we got caught in the middle. Right. So. Well, it's a fascinating area, a uh, developing area. I'm sure we'll revisit it soon. Um, I feel like I should also mention, as we have John Bergner here on our podcast, and we're not only podcast broadcasters but also consumers, and I started my commute Monday morning listening to one of my favorites, the uh, Bill Crystal podcast. <laughs> yes. And there I found his guest this week is one Jeff Bergner, who is related to you. He is indeed. That's my father. Uh, I don't think he would consider himself a weed wonk necessarily. but uh, No, no, yeah. but he is a wonk, he and is, he, is yeah. a, he has a very interesting book out I'd encourage everyone to read. I intend to. Uh, read it and uh, the podcast. Uh, it's it's like a two hour session with Bill Crystal. Fascinating discussion about where we are in our Congress, uh, particularly in the Senate, but really both House and Senate, and reforms that we should make to uh, really improve those bodies and how they operate. Uh, given uh, you know Dr. Bergner's uh, great experience as a staffer to uh, Senator Luger back when he was Chairman of Foreign Affairs or Foreign Relations, and uh, and Dr. Bergner was uh, Staff Director. So. Uh, credit to um, um, you to have uh, such a, uh, a learned father who uh, has great uh, wisdom for us on public policy and, and the institutions we deal with. And uh, thank you for uh, lending us your wisdom as a weed wonk, uh, <laughs> a title that uh, has been given yep. and has been demonstrated here in our podcast today. Uh, it really is a, a very interesting and important, emerging important area for us. So, John, thanks. Thanks for being our guest today. Well, thanks, Chuck. I was uh, happy to do it. Appreciate you having me. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Georgia State Representative John Carson about the success of the state's new hands-free driving law and how officials are already seeing positive trends from a reduction in distracted driving. And finally, it's hard to believe, but we're just six months away from NAMIC's 124th annual convention. If you're already planning to visit us at National Harbor, just outside of Washington, D.C., you'll want to register on our website at namic.org by March 31st. That date marks the end of our discounted early bird registration. And listen in the coming weeks for updates to the convention agenda as we announce new speakers and educational sessions. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on April 3rd. If you have a topic or an issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.